This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Frank Reddy. How's it going? This is part two of episode number 13 of Cinema Fix, focusing on the movie Chronicle. So if you're looking for part one, you're listening to the wrong file. Stop listening to this and go listen to part one. About Chronicle. Yes, about Chronicle. Thanks thanks for the reminder, Frank. (laughs) If this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, you should be aware that uh, this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted to in-depth discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. And each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general non-spoiler discussion where we give our, our brief overall thoughts on the movie. And the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the movie uh, where we will be talking spoilers. We will be talking about what does and doesn't work about the, the film. And it's designed to be listened to either after you've heard part one or at least after you've seen the film. I mean, don't spoil it for yourself. Chronicle is a film directed by Josh Trank, written by Max Landis. And uh, if you listened to part one of our discussion, then you already know the basic synopsis. But if you didn't, it's essentially about a group of high schoolers who find this interesting uh, hole in the ground where a meteor appears to have crashed. They go inside, and they walk out with superpowers, essentially. And it's a found footage, handy cam, film, so it's kind of meant to, to, it's framed like a documentary about these kids, and what ultimately happens to them is they discover these powers. Here's a clip. You see that car, though? Yeah. The gun was cool. All right, you tried. Watch this. What are you doing? What? Okay, Frank. Chronicle, as we both concluded in part one, is a really well-written film. It's it's surprisingly well done, I think, for for, for this kind of movie and. Um, I was wondering before we got into it if there's anything in particular you wanted to to really talk about. Because I have some things I wanted to dive into, but do you have anything? Sure. Uh, I'd be glad to kick things off. Um, well, I, I guess in general, I felt that the character arcs, I think, were very good. I think they were very subtly handled, and I, I think that um, it, it was definitely well written. I think the thing that I thought interested me the most was um, you have this kid, Andrew, the the protagonist and um, his his mother is is dying slowly. Um, his father doesn't have the money to pay for the medication. Uh, his father was a firefighter who got injured on in the line of duty and now lives off his pension and spends a lot of time drinking and has decided to take a lot of his anger and frustration with life out on his son. And what, what really interested me about Andrew's arc is he he hates his father. They established that pretty quick. And the, the whole movie is essentially about him becoming his father in a way. 
um, without him even realizing it. He, he, you know, Andrew doesn't have the easiest life, and you, you slowly see him as he gets this power start to lash out and blame other people for for everything that's happened to him. Um, and he begins to, to lash out violently and destructively. And in a way, you know, his philosophy becomes almost framed by, I think, what he suffered at the hands of his father, where his father I took, was able to take all his frustration out on his son because, you know, Andrew was a lot smaller than he was. You just notice the physical discrepancy between the two actors. And, you know, he had complete authority over Andrew. Is where Andrew gets telepathy and suddenly, you know, the world is his playground. He can lash out at whoever he wants. And I, I thought that that progression of him essentially becoming the person that he hates the most was interesting. Well, well, yeah, you're right. There is definitely that link between him and his father. I mean, we find out that his father was a firefighter, that apparently something went wrong, and now he's kind of like the outcast. He's always on his own. He's the the, the one who's who's getting drunk and, and basically a loner, kind of like Andrew. And he, like Andrew, ultimately lashes out at the yeah. people around him. And it's interesting you bring that up because, as we mentioned briefly in part one, this is a film in which one of the main characters, Matt, is obsessed with philosophy. And at one point, he he quotes something from um, German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer um, about the nature of the will and how we 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 can't how basically we can't get what we desire. Yeah, essentially. And I was did a little bit of research on Schopenhauer because I didn't know a whole lot about him. And actually, Schopenhauer had this interesting genetic theory that was later disproven, of course. But he basically argued that your character can be passed down genetically and that people's character and their personality uh, can be... You can get it from your father, yeah, essentially. And that is kind of what we see in this movie with uh, Andrew ultimately becoming that thing that he hates. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about Schopenhauer is that he also talks about how there's this idea of everyone has their their own will that they can use to, uh, for, for good or evil. And he talks about how gravity and electricity are two elements that Schopenhauer argues can be controlled sort of by, by your will. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes into play in this film when Andrew uh, basically kills Steve with a bolt of lightning yeah. and a bolt of electricity after defying gravity, essentially, and flying around. Yeah. Um, so I, I found it interesting that you have all of these elements of Schopenhauer popping up in this film related to the uh, the protagonist. I agree. I, I think it's interesting just to consider the whole theme of Will. I, I mean, because not only do you have the Schopenhauer references, you also have a very, very brief scene where um, Andrew and his mother are outside somewhere. The mother is sick. She she knows she's dying, and she has Andrew promise her, say, I promise you that I'm stronger than this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an interesting scene because they never, you know, it's really the only one that the two really have together where they're talking um you know, it becomes it becomes about will there. It becomes about um, can he be strong enough to get through, you know, his problems at school, um, his problems with his father, or is he going to let that break him and turn turn him into a monster? And it's just such a great contradiction because his power, telepathy, is basically a power that's fueled by willpower. You know, you right. you, you you move something just by willing it. 
And I would argue that by the end of the film, Andrew has just really lost control. He's he's lost all will. He's just he's allowed himself to spiral in for what's happening to consume him. Well, well, sure. And it's it's interesting because the quote they bring up from Schopenhauer is that idea that you you can't have what you desire. Yeah. And Andrew seems to be struggling with that the entire film. He he can't have what he wants. He he won't have the the dad that's nice to him. He can't have the mother that's healthy. He can't have the popularity at school. He can't even uh, lose his virginity at one point in the film. He can't seem to get anything that he desires. So when he discovers he has these superpowers, it's almost like all of his other desires come forth. And it's like, you know what? Well, I can't have what I really want, but I can at least do this yeah. to, 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 to have this thing that I want right now in the moment. And it's interesting, if you just do a Wikipedia search for Schopenhauer, uh, I, you know, you, you find out that basically Schopenhauer argued that you can never really escape from pain and you can never really escape from these unfulfilled desires and any pleasure you experience is just a momentary lapse yeah. in that. Um, and so that's what definitely what we see with Andrew, where he has these he has these little moments where he's in control. He can do what he wants. He can he at some point seems genuinely happy or on the road to happiness, but those are just momentary lapses. Well, it's tragic because when they talk about when they after they just they learn to fly, Andrew wants to go to Tibet, and the reason he wants to go there is he he thinks it's peaceful. Right. And you get all this kid really wants is to be. It's just for things to just stop, you right. know, just have to stop having all these different things flying at him to just get a moment where he's just kind of content and not doesn't have to worry about the guys at school, his father. He just wants like a nice, calm existence. And it, it, it's tragic in a way because it just it spirals so out of control. Well, right. And again, this that's another example of how Andrew is essentially the embodiment of Schopenhauer's philosophy. I mean, Schopenhauer basically argued he was a big fan of Buddhism and basically argued that, you know, even though you have all these unfulfilled desires, you can, through meditation, you can eventually come to grips with that and learn to accept that. Yeah. And he viewed that as the ultimate ideal. Unfortunately, Andrew never gets there. He never yeah. comes to grips with his unfulfilled desires and learns to accept that. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to ask you, I thought the, the character of Andrew, I think, was just very, very interesting because you don't get the impression that he's an inherently bad kid. I mean, he seems okay, but I think we come in at the point in the movie where um, he's already kind of teetering. Like, he, I, like he's kind of on the edge already of, like, a psychological break. Like, even his cousin Matt says, you know, I, I was worried about you. It's like, you, you know, I wasn't sure you're difficult to talk to. I, I was really, I was worried about you. And, mm. um, you know, there's that scene where they're driving in the car and that truck is coming up behind them honking. And Andrew goes, guys, watch this. And he waves his hand and sends it flying off the road. You know, it's never, it wasn't really clear to me whether or not that was what he intended to do or whether or not he just wanted to, to do something else. And because it was raining, the car slipped and right. went completely off the rails. Um, but you get like these moments where you're not really sure if he's become, even with the camera so detached 
from people if he's, you know, buffered himself so much off that he's a little bit of a sociopath. Well, it's even after the crash, the way he responds to it, it's clear he doesn't have much empathy yeah. for the people around him. And it's interesting you bring up that idea as the camera as a buffer because one thing I really liked about the film is that it really makes this handheld camera footage a thematic core of the film and yeah. that, that idea that he is really communicating through the camera. He's mm-hmm. got this camera that he's focused on and that is one how he feels complete. Yeah. Um, but as a result, he's never really fully relating to the people around him. Uh, no. I mean, I mean, the, the opening shot of the film is him setting up the camera, his drunk dad banging on the door, and he's just like, I'm filming. I have the camera. Yeah. Kind of like, I'm in control. You can't come in here. I have a camera. Yeah. And that idea that through filming and through um, having this camera with him, he is essentially controlling the narrative. Um, he almost becomes an actor in his own movie. He, he, you know, one almost gets the impression that he grew up watching superhero films, and now that he has these powers, he wants to almost be the star. He, he basically he wants the world to notice him. So, yeah. which is why he's always filming. He wants that. He wants that connection. But it's ironic because by filming himself in a way where the whole world can see, he's really not connecting with anybody. Yeah, I mean, it's it is definitely. I don't know. It's just it was a giant red flag to me that he he. It wasn't even that he. He couldn't connect with anybody. It's that you feel like you entered it at a point in his life where he'd become so alienated, he had kind of lost interest in connecting with anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, he clearly enjoys having friends for, after he got the powers. I mean, he clearly enjoys that, you know, that whole scene at Steve's grave where he apologizes and said he didn't mean to do it, that something just happened. Um, but again, I, I like that there's ambiguity there, too, where he's saying, you know... I, the pa- I the powers were out, got out of my control. I didn't mean for the lightning bolt to hit you, or if it was, if or if it was more of, you know, I did mean for the lightning bolt to hit you, but it was in a moment of pure emotion. I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't something I wanted to do. Right, and and you kind of wonder, well, if the camera hadn't been there, yeah, would the outcome have been different at all, or does the fact that the camera almost is inherently uh, an egotistical act. It it is kind of selfish the way he's always filming himself and he's always filming his reality. Without that, would he have been able to be more empathetic towards the people around him? I don't know. It just seems like he's so far gone. And I think you're right. I think the camera exacerbated that a tremendous ideal because you do see it progress from, all right, I'm at the camera. I'm outside things. I'm I'm recording things rather than being a part of them. And then you see that slowly progress towards th- that whole. Um, I forget what the, the term was. It was like prime predator or apex uh, predator. A- apex predator, where yeah. he views himself apart from humanity, where he views you know he views himself as like almost a different species than humanity, and and doesn't view, he doesn't he doesn't view them as people anymore. He, he views them well. I'm more evolved than they are. I, I can pick them off however I want. Yeah, and I was watching that. It, it seemed to me almost like a commentary on on art yeah. or the movies to some extent. I mean, we were at we were this, this is a movie. We were yeah. there watching this at the cinema, and I was kind of thinking about how you know how many artists have you heard of that 
are extremely creative people, but they, they, they're kind of geeky. They're kind of outcasts. They grow up without much social connection, but they, they kind of, um, immerse themselves in their art and become really famous. Yeah. And there is, I think, to some extent within, I, I think artists can succumb to their own ego. Yeah. At times and feel like, well, I, I'm an artist. Yeah. I'm better than you. And you almost, you have this interesting thread throughout the movie where Andrew isn't just filming himself. It's almost like he's, he's improving as a filmmaker. Yeah. As the film progresses. I mean, you have all these moments where he's just practicing alone with the camera, getting it to move the way he wants. And the camera goes from being really, really kind of shaky at first to gradually having these more cinematic, uh, smooth, flowing. Yeah. Really interesting flourishes. And then by the end of the film, he's moved beyond this single camera setup and he's controlling all of these other cameras. Yeah, I mean, cameras, yeah. uh, in the final scene where he's fighting Matt above the, the space needle, he, 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 um, basically steals. Yeah, he's got iPhones. camera phones. Camera yeah. phones, iPhones. Uh, he's, he steals everybody's cameras. So again, not only is he improving as a filmmaker where he's, He's got this multi-camera system yeah. to film all the action, but he's again. It, it that is also symbolic of his own ego in the sense that now all he's got all these different cameras. Yeah. All the, the all the emphasis is on him, um, and it just kind of I found that thematic thread really really interesting. That idea that as you progress as a filmmaker, perhaps. Perhaps filmmaking is an inherently selfish act to some extent. Perhaps, well, or perhaps all art is selfish to some extent. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if all art is necessarily selfish. I think that it does require you, though. I think all artists, in a sense, do have to take a step back and, uh, and observe. And I think what this movie is is looking at it through the lens of, you know, at what point, you know, if you stay outside things long enough, at what point does that become a bad thing. Like, at what point does that render you a sociopath? And, you know, it just, it's really interesting to try and chart his progression because it, it, the movie, I think, was very subtle about it. it. Like, he definitely started off on the edge and then slowly you saw him slip and slip and slip. And then you're also wondering, though, he has these friends, though, for the first time. So does that bring him up? And it just, I think it's just the baggage of the people at school and his home life just got too much. He was already too far gone, I think. Right, and then you have the death of his mother, which is basically the the tipping point. Well, I think it was the death of his mother, coupled by the way his father dealt with the death of oh, his sure. mother. Um, you know, and it, that was it, that was also I think interestingly done too, because there's no love I think between the audience and the father at all. I mean, the father was horrible, right? And you have that scene where the father comes into the the hospital room, and you're kind of expecting, okay, this is the moment where he breaks down and tries to reconcile with his son. And instead, he blames his son for right. his wife's death, and with using totally irrational logic. Right. Um, but again, it, it's it's irrational. But part of me was thinking, well, to some extent, does Andrew feel that way? Does Andrew kind of blame himself, like because I was out, because I couldn't get the medicine in time? It's my fault. She died, and so having the father come in and basically say, "Yeah, it was you." I think that's that that's what pushes him over the edge. It's because he doesn't have someone to basically come and say, "I love you. It's not your fault." 
Yeah. You know, and there's that interesting scene at the end of the movie when Matt is looking at the camera and is basically like, I should have told you I loved you to your face instead of just in private to yeah. this, to the camera. Yeah. Um, so again, you have that idea of the, the, the camera being the way through which we can see the world, but also the, this invisible barrier prohibiting human connection. Yeah. To some extent. Um, and I th- also think it's appropriate then at the end that Matt leaves the camera. Yeah. Behind. And it's basically like, you know, I'm here in Tibet. This is my final tribute to you, Andrew. But now I'm going to go live my life. Yeah. I'm going to go have a life of connection and do good, yeah. essentially. And and the movie seems to be arguing, well, in order to do that, you can't have the camera. Yeah, it, you have to be involved with stuff instead of just recording it. Like, I, I, I think you're right. I think it's just you have to – it's impossible to live a full, good um, – productive life if you're just standing outside and watching. So do you think the movie is trying, is, is essentially to some extent a condemnation of mass entertainment and movies and, uh, filmmaking and I think in a way it's a condemnation of just artificiality and distance. Cause even if you look at the character of Matt, we, I mean, we were talking about him. He was, he would, was definitely a mouthpiece for some of those philosophical ideas they want to introduce but what I liked about it is they also made it part of his character where he's kind of like a typical high school kid who kind of thinks he knows it all and probably doesn't grasp the significance of some of these um, – some of this philosophy that he's spouting. He uses right. it to kind of make himself seem very deep and cool. And even Casey calls him on that at a couple points during right. the movie that he doesn't know. And what I enjoyed about his character arc is was it, it was about him going from the guy just saying that stuff because it sounds deep and intellectual – to get into the girl's pants to the kid at the end who looks at the camera and goes, you know, I'm going to go out and do good. Like he's going right. to, there's one thing to actually kind of say that stuff and kind of, but it's another thing to go into the world and do it. And I think for, for me, I think it's the same argument, which is that you can't just stand back from stuff. You have to be a part of life or else you can't really connect. You can't be human unless you're a part of humanity. Well, right. And, you know, he, the last shot is of the, the monastery of the Tibetan villages there. And you almost get the impression, well, maybe he's going to go live with the monks for a while and, uh, figure stuff out. Um, and, and he also says, I'm going to, I'm going to find out what happened in that cave. Yeah. Basically. Which I think is interesting because earlier in the film, he mentions Plato's allegory of the cave. Yeah. Which was essentially about how, you're in the cave and you see shadows on the wall of people outside, you can think you know what those people are based on the shadows, but then once you go out into reality, you'll realize it's completely unlike anything you've ever seen. And you have, so you have, I, I find that interesting that the film, in the film, they literally go into a cave. Yeah. And supposedly have this new appreciation of reality when they come out of the cave. Yeah. They're completely changed. They have all these new powers. They have this new perspective. But they don't really know why. Yeah. And so the, 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 the final moment is kind of Matt saying, well, we can, philosophically speaking, we can, we can be philosophers. We can, we can grow to understand how things work. Yeah. But, we need to understand that transition. I need to understand what happened there. Well, it's interesting because philosophy 
in a way is a lot like filmmaking in the sense that in order to really you have to take a step back and observe in order to come up with all this philosophy. You, you're not really you're taking a step back for a more scientific approach to society instead of really being a part of it. And I feel like the end it's for Matt it's the transition between between philosopher and actual do gooder. Like it, it's almost like the end of that movie would have been the tee off for a traditional superhero movie where out of tragedy they learn to use their powers responsibly and they're going to go help society. Well, right and. I find it interesting, getting back to, to what we were saying about that link between philosophy and, and, and cinema, that the movie almost seems to be saying, okay, you're here watching the movie, now go live your life. Yeah. Stop stop living your life through the movies, stop living your life to these through these characters to some extent, and go make a real connection. Yeah. Kind of. So it's, it's this very kind of subversive look at art and cinema, I think. It, it almost seems to be saying, uh, don't go to the movies. Or if you do go to the movies... Okay, here's a, here's an interesting thought that just popped into my head. Getting back to Schopenhauer and the idea of unfulfilled desires. Do you think that cinema to some extent acts as a, as a kind of cathartic way to fulfill those desires. Oh, of course it is. I mean, there's a whole genre, escapism. I mean, it's, right. it is escapism. It's a way to kind of go, um, I mean, okay, if you're a kid like Andrew, if you're a, a, like a geeky guy, you, you know, you go to the movies to see, you know, to, to pretend to live someone else's life for a little while. Like to right. be Han Solo, to be Indiana Jones. You go to to get away from it all after a while. And I would say, if anything, this movie's arguing, it's like, that's okay every once in a while. It's okay to do it every once in a while, but... Like in the movie, you, like you have Steve telling Andrew, you know, put the camera down every once in a while right. and just live your life. And it, there's a time and a place, I and, think. And again, that was what Schopenhauer seemed to argue. Yeah. It, 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 you know, he seemed, he said, you know, there, from what little I know about him, his basic argument was, yeah, your desires are going to be unfulfilled, but that's okay. You need to just accept that. Yeah. So instead of being lost in your unfulfilled desires or instead of, looking to art or just becoming lost in the movies. Fantasy. And fantasy, essentially. Yeah, basically accept the fact that this is real life and make it make the best you can of it. Yeah, deal with it. I mean, I think, I mean, I think if anything, somebody in Andrew's situation would want an escape. And I think, you know, with the whole, you know, promise me you're stronger than this, it's, you know, you got to grin and bear it sometimes. Right. And just to make the best of it. Well, it's interesting that he interprets that as, well, I am stronger. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's going to, it's going to be a bit ironic if this movie makes a ton of money at the box office, yeah. <laughs> because again, the, it, it, it'll make all this money because people are going to the, to the movie to escape reality, yeah. to have this fantasy, to forget about their unfulfilled desires. And the movie at the end of the day is saying, eh, maybe you shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, one other small thing I wanted to talk about is I almost got the sense that there was kind of a small political allegory going okay. on the, in, in the idea that, uh, you know, how, how, a, how a leader can essentially become totalitarian. Um, I mean, you've got Andrew's father who he is sure to point out from the very beginning he doesn't do anything. He gets drunk. He's living off government welfare. He's essentially a leech. Yeah. And so part of me was thinking, oh, okay, 
So is this meant to be almost like this perverse tea party-ish philosophy about, oh, those people who, uh, are, you know, live off the system, they're bad people, and we need to, to get to kind of fight back against them, and, and it's about his ultimate rise to power and how destructive that philosophy is. On the other hand, there's another point in the movie, getting related to the death of his mother, where he's out, um, you know, basically sticking up a pharmacy because they can't pay the medical bills. They can't get the pills. Yeah. Um, so that almost seemed to me like the movie was saying, well, if you're a, a more on the left wing side of things and you think that, you know, everyone should have access to, to these drugs and everyone should have access to health care and we, and you're living at a time when that doesn't true, isn't the case. If you get too angry about it, if you get too caught up in your philosophy and, and the fact that you need it, you could ultimately become destructive. I, I mean, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. I, I just, I, I mean, I didn't see that, but, um, I don't know. At first I was thinking, wait, is this kind of, is this, this weird subversion of Tea Party philosophy? And then I was like, well, no, wait, it's kind of making, there's this weird, subtle thing about healthcare in there too. So I got the idea that I came away with, well, maybe the point is just that, you know what, it doesn't matter what your political philosophy is. If you think you're better than the other side, if you think that you're the apex predator, if you think that, that your ideology is superior, and that that makes you better than everyone else. That that that's destructive, no matter what the ideology is. Yeah, in essence, um, you know, it doesn't matter what you think. If you think that thinking it makes you better, then you're just going to hurt people. Yeah, I mean, I could I could see that. I could see that definitely. Um, you know, I thought it was much more of like a personal. I thought it was, I think I thought it was much more of like a personal exploration as where in the way that. You know, I thought it was more just about the downfall of this kid in terms of – it was more of an emotional issue. Well, I think it was mainly the, the, the apex predator stuff that kind of got my brain going off on that yeah. track. Because, I mean, it's this very social Darwinist mm-hmm. kind of philosophy, the idea that, well, some people are better than others and some people deserve what they get kind, yeah. of, kind of thing. I just I – th- I thought of it more as like the ultimate form of, of distance – I mean, literally seeing yourself as, as apart from or better than right. another group of people. And, you know, I, I would agree with you that I think the film, I think the film was trying to say that that's dangerous, that that's very dangerous once you start to view people as an other or a, a subset. Right. Um, nothing good comes from that. Right. And I guess I, I also kind of, my brain went off on that political tangent just because you've got Steve who's the charismatic black kid kind of like Obama <laughs> but then again maybe really? it's just maybe it's just because I'm, I'm I'm kind of a political person so I was seeing that and I was kind of like oh and of course the black kid's gonna die of course the charismatic charismatic black leader is gonna get taken out but oh but briefly I just want to say I thought fa- I did find it interesting that the way they, they didn't characterize the the high school these high school cliques yeah. in a very stereotypical way. You've got the popular athletic kid, Steve, who, once he has these powers, ends up hanging out with the nerds. Yeah. And he doesn't, he doesn't seem to use it to improve his performance on the football field. He doesn't use it to, to, to pick on 
other people. He ends up hanging out with Matt and Andrew, the two outcasts all the time. I thought that was interesting, too, um, because usually in movies like that, like the popular kid and uh, popular kids tend to have the weaker moral compass is where the nerdy outcast is like, you know, the diamond in the rough. Right. As we're here, it was kind of the exact opposite, where right. they're both like, you you have to stop. Like, you, you can't do stuff like that. And he's like, well, why can't I? Right. And, you know, it, it almost seems to be saying that it doesn't matter if you're the popular kid or if you're the dorky philosopher kid, if you've got good morals and yeah. you've got your good character and you've got your integrity, that's going to stay the same no matter no matter what. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of movies do tend to romanticize the part of the outsider. As we're here, there was nothing. It was pretty cold. It was right. like, this is dangerous. It's like people, you need to treat people well because people who are like this are prone to snap. Well, right. And then and that's why it's interesting that we have the character of, of Matt here who at first kind of seems like he's a cool kid. Yeah. Kind of seems like. He's, you know, he's got the square jaw. He's, he's, uh, he, he, apparently he didn't hang out with Andrew for a while. And you kind of get the impression, well, maybe this kid was kind of cool. And then you kind of find out, well, now nah, he's a big dork. Well, yeah, I think he was trying to be cool. And that's yeah. the period when he and Andrew kind of drifted apart. He, he's not really cool. He thinks he's cool or he's trying to be cool. He's trying to impress the ladies, but ultimately he's just like Andrew. Andrew. Yeah. But what separates him from Andrew. Better family life. Better family life. And that idea that 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 search for connection that I Matt tries to connect, and that I think they right. made that pretty clear early on. It's where he he really wants to get out there and meet people. Right. He doesn't always have the camera with him. Yeah. He's trying to meet the uh, the blogger. Yeah. He's trying to connect with her, and oddly enough, she's the one with the camera that perhaps is kind of. Well, it's interesting because Matt does say several times, "I don't like to be on camera." It's like, right. Can you just put that down. He, he says it to Casey. He says it to Andrew. It's like, can we just? We just talk. Yeah. And not have this be a whole show. Right. And can I just say that final scene with uh, with him and Casey in the car? Yeah. Uh, done in one single take. I thought that was pretty awesome. I thought it was pretty cool. Where they're in the car, they're getting thrown around, the car is flying, and then it's falling, and then he's pulling her out of the car as it falls. And it was just, it, it was done in a single shot, like it was... Yeah. The documentary style, but it made sense. Yeah. My brain was able to keep up with what was happening, and I really liked that. Yeah. Um, because I think when you have a single camera setup like that, um, it would be easy for some of that, some, some of those big action scenes near the end to become incomprehensible. Yeah. Um, which I think is why the event eventually they do have to bring in all the other cameras, but but it, it also made sense. Yeah, it made sense because he, he they established that he had an obsession with filming, right? So it it made sense. Um, one thing I want to ask you about was the uh, the nosebleeds they kept getting periodically, mm-hmm. and you know, honestly, at one point I expected in that last shot when he's saying I'm going to go off and do all these things, I honestly expected Matt to to, to like drop dead. Because they kept playing with this idea that their noses kept running. Like, the more they tried to do, like, they compared the telepathy telepathy to a muscle. If you push it too far, too fast, it'll rip. And I I honestly expected them all. I thought for a moment the end of the movie was going to be Andrew going nuts and then dying from overexertion. Right. And But what I started to get the sense of was maybe it was, like, a warning sign. Like, maybe they were all connected telepathically. And when one of them... Like Andrew was spinning out of control, they would get nosebleeds. 
That makes sense. Because he, he gets that nosebleed at Casey's right before the big battle, and he says, I have to go find Andrew. And I thought maybe it was because he thought that Andrew was experiencing the same symptoms. Right. But maybe it's just that he found out that something was going very, very wrong. Well, you do get that idea that they, they are connected yeah. to some extent. I mean, they can sort of sense when something's going wrong. Right. Um, but at the same time, I, I do kind of – I think it's a little bit of both because you, you do have that idea that, oh – we need to, this is a muscle we need to practice. Yeah. And if we don't practice and we overexert ourselves, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of interpreted it as a little bit of both. It is both a sign that they've overexerted themselves and it's a sign that they are connected and they need to kind of keep an eye out on each other, which is interesting because again, it, it goes back to that whole idea of empathy and that idea that, well, if you, if you don't, if you're not paying attention to your fellow man and if you're not caring about each other, then ultimately you're just going to get hurt. Yeah. Um, that's going to be destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, any other thoughts on Chronicle or any of the numerous ideas floating around in Chronicle? No, I just, you know, I, I think you can tell by our discussion that we both enjoyed it and we both yeah. thought there was a lot there to chew on. So yeah. go see it. Well, much smarter film. Than you would have, I expected. I, to yeah. be honest, I went into it. Kind of like, oh, there's a good chance this is going to be really hokey and stupid. Right. And it, it wasn't. I, I really was surprised by how how into it I got. Yeah, I mean, it's got, it's got its characters fully formed. It links that to these different thematic threads related to filmmaking and uh, and philosophy. And it just, it flows. And it's, it. I don't know, I was really impressed by it. Especially looking back, the, the more I think about it, it's a very, very... Well done film. There's a lot of cleverness to it. A really, just a lot of intelligence, both in conception and execution. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of critics are just saying, "Yeah, it's a, it's a fun movie. Go see it." But I, I think there actually is a lot of intelligence in yeah. it. And the story is substantive. I think we've, you know, I left kind of feeling a little bit eerie, almost like a little bit like you know, I got to make sure that I treat people well. Like I got to make sure that you know I. That you you want to make sure that you're socially responsible, that you're not ignoring somebody in pain, that you're, you know, I view Andrew almost as like a cautionary tale, both for people who have a tendency to remove themselves and attach themselves, but also for, you know, the people around them. Just, right. You know, treat people well. Um, and yeah, I kind of came away thinking, well, I don't want to be that Andrew. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to be that Andrew. <laughs> nope. <laughs> want to be a different Andrew. And it, it also, I also came away thinking about that whole idea of cinema, and I'm like, okay. If I immerse myself too much in movies, which is what I'm passionate about, if I yeah. immerse myself too much in that, am I losing connection with other people? Yeah. And where do we find that balance? Yeah. And I think that's something as uh, film geeks that you and I and our listeners need to need to think about. Well, I think it's something relatable for everybody because everybody does have that passion, you know, um, but there's a balance you strike between, you know, indulging your passion and having a life full of right. people and connection. Right. And how important that is in order to, you know, I think, I think what's scary about the film is it's dead on and that it's so easy to kind of lose perspective on things and to, um, and to lash out. And you, you have to make sure that you're always kind of grounded by people. Like, you need to know that there are people there to kind of, you know, that, that they love you and, you know, to kind of give you a sense of perspective and anchor you to reality. Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with that. So you're not an apex predator. Exactly. So that, that's the lesson of the day, folks. Don't go, don't be an apex predator. Go meet people, go make connections. Go love someone. 
Yeah. Go love someone tonight. Do it. That's the feel-good message of today's show. Yeah, and don't throw up when you do it. Yeah, don't. Don't. (laughs) I mean, drink, but don't. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for our thoughts on uh, Chronicle. Don't forget to tune in next week when we'll be discussing Safe House. What do you think, Frank? Is Safe House going to be a smartest Chronicle? Don't know. Could I, don't, be. I don't know. It could be. I, I, I honestly don't know. It's another one of those winter action movies. So those those can always go either way. Yeah, we we will see. Uh, we would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at www.filmgeekradio.com. Um, also, we would really appreciate it if you go to the website and click the link in the sidebar for our audience survey. We really are trying to get some listener feedback so that we can improve our content. We can figure out what you guys want. We can figure out how to improve the network. It takes about five to ten minutes to fill out the survey. It's completely anonymous. We're not going to get your private information or anything like that. And it would really help us figure out um, how we can make Film Geek Radio better for you. So please head on over to the website and uh, and fill that out. Uh, you can also review us on iTunes. That would help get the word out about the show. And uh, you can also donate uh, through the website as well. Um, that really just helps us pay for hosting. That helps us uh, keep developing new content each week. So we, we really appreciate that as well. Frank, where can people find you online? Uh, FJ Ready on Twitter and, quite frankly, television.wordpress.com. I'm Andrew Johnson. You can find some of my writing at www.thecoolshopeffect.com. I will also soon be... Uh, posting some of my writing on a new blog extension that we're getting ready to to add to Film Geek Radio. So, again, check the website for that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash writerandrew. And if you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know that you are a listener so I can follow you back and we can keep talking about the movies. All right, I'm Andrew Johnson. And I am Frank Reddy. And have fun this week getting high on cinema. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!